The lone wolf is actually alone because it's looking for connection. They leave in order to find a mate and form their own pack. If loneliness is an epidemic, what can wolves teach us about loneliness, courage, and connection? Erica Berry is the author of Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. Her essays in journalism appear in Wired, The Yale Review, The Guardian, The New York Times Magazine, Atlantic, and Guernica, among other publications. Barry is taught workshops for teenagers and adults at Literary Arts, The New York Times Student Journeys, and Oxford Academia. Erica Barry, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for being here. I believe you're going to kick off by sharing a passage from your book, Wolfish. Just set up for us the passage you're going to share with us, if you would. Yeah, so this is from the beginning of the first chapter, and it's called Adventure versus Wolf. It was winter when she crossed. Maybe she found a bridge of ice. Maybe she snuck across Brownlee Dam. Or maybe there was only current. Maybe she just swam. At the depths of Hell's Canyon, the river that separates Idaho and Oregon is milky and knotted with rapids. At one end, over the reservoirs just south of the dam, the water is nearly a mile wide. The wolf would have chosen her path carefully. She did not flirt with risk, not like a coyote. She knew what she could do. A wolf can swim up to eight miles at a time, paddling like a dog after a stick, the skin between her toes, enough webbing to help push her through a current. The snake is the largest tributary to the Columbia River, its waters an echo of the agriculture. It has slipped through, heading west from Wyoming. The wolf could not know it, but all through the river there were traces of cow, fertilizer, sediment, manure. Water that had once been blue was now often sea glass green with algae. It was 1999, and the wolf was in the belly of Hell's Canyon, the deepest gorge in North America, 2,000 feet deeper in some places than the Grand Canyon. From the sprawling plateaus and high pastures above, the canyon feels unfathomable, as if the northeastern border of Oregon has just unzipped rocky, sagebrush-strewn cliffs to reveal a world over a mile deep beneath mud-slick layers of limestone and lava. 300 million year old products of underwater volcanoes. This is the homeland of the Nez Perce, the Nimipu, who knew the canyon as a place of shelter carved by a coyote. Their stories tell how Creator made Rai Coyote the teacher of human beings, but the wolf, He Min, belonged her too. This was her land. When white men appeared, those who would later hunt the region's wolves all the way to extinction, they had taken the same route and the Nez Perce had named them for it. Suyapu, they called the invaders, across the water people. Now, as the wolf shook the river from her back, droplets constellated in the frozen air. She was a yearling, nearly full-grown, the runt of her litter, almost waist-high on a grown man, her weight around 65 pounds, her coat the gradient of stone, the color, perhaps, of that day's January sky. Her winter under fur was so thick the cold did not even reach her bones. She was a descendant of the Canadian wolves reintroduced to Idaho just a couple of years earlier as part of an effort to restore the American gray wolf populations that had been slaughtered to extinction in the early 20th century. Around her neck, the radio collar given by the Idaho Department of Fish and Wildlife was a dull and nearly forgotten weight. B-45, that's what they were calling her, the 45th wolf to be collared in Idaho, one node of a federal wolf recovery program that the Nez Perce tribe was working to help implement. With each step, her saucer-sized paws splintered the lattice of icy crystals that frosted the earth. 
Turning tail to the river, she climbed into the snow and the vanilla-scented air of hundred-year-old ponderosa pines. If a bald eagle cut the sky above her, she heard it. If a rabbit threw itself into a snowy burrow, she smelled it. A wolf can average eight to ten hours a day of travel, often moving in the seams between day and night. Ten miles, twenty, thirty, forty more. She'd left her family in east-central Idaho to look for the three things any young wolf needs to survive. A mate, a meal, and defensible territory. But she did not know that in climbing onto this far shore of the Snake River, she had crossed a border. Not just a state line, but a line of history. Because she'd been fitted a year earlier with her collar, her movements were legible to humans, and she was now superlative, the first known member of her species to step into Oregon in over 50 years. As in much of continental America, wolves had not lived here since the state's last wolf bounty was paid to a trapper in the 1940s. When B-45 arrived, she came as both the dawn of the future and a relic from the past. B-45 seems to me a title ill-suited for a majestic animal, and more appropriate for a chemical used to color breakfast cereal, wrote one skeptical editor of an Eastern Oregon newspaper. When the Nez Perce tribe and an environmental conservation group held a contest to name her, Freedom won. A local conservationist began to call her Eve. Yes, and so throughout your book, which weaves through in such a lyrical way that it's maybe more than one book, it's exploration of real wolves and imaginary, the wolves of legend and mythology and the fearful specter that they present to some people's minds. And also, you know, the reverence, as you say there with the Nez Pierce and you're in Portland and in the Pacific Northwest, there's a tradition of particularly in the indigenous communities that also respecting the wolf. So it's not always fear. There's also that respect as well. Just tell us what started you on this journey. I've always found wolves fascinating. What sparked it off for you? Yeah, I think I had also found them sort of beautiful and fascinating and hadn't realized that growing up, they were this extinct creature in the landscape, of course, that was existing for me and for many others, just in stories, just in lore, just in animated versions. And so I actually think it's important to remember that symbolic wolf was very present for my generation because I sort of was coming of age at the time that wolves were starting to come back. I think the main sort of thing that happened was my mother one day got very, very ill. And I was living on the East Coast in Maine and guiding a canoe trip. We were out in the woods and I was getting these calls like she's in the hospital. We don't know what's going on. Her fever is very high. They were very worried. And eventually they figured it out. And this problem was that she'd been bitten by a tick and had gotten very sick. And an epidemiologist in the hospital just kind of happened to say offhandedly, we have so much more illness in the landscape because there's rodents and we don't have predators keeping in control the smaller levels of this ecosystem. If we had more wolves, we would have less tick sickness. He just said it offhandedly, but it was the first thing that made me think about the ways that the wolf was connected to my own body and that suddenly we were existing in this interconnected ecosystem way. I was probably 21 at the time. It had never really occurred to me that the presence of wolves, of course, was not just an aesthetic thing that was beautiful to imagine. It was actually tied to these ecosystem dynamics that have implications for the health of my species as well. And so I began to study wolves academically. I wrote my environmental studies thesis about it, about their repopulation in the American West where I live. And the controversy around it in this Western perspective really troubled me. I have a grandfather who was a sheep farmer, and he talked less about wolves, but another relative who was a taxidermist who had an anti-wolf bumper sticker on his truck. And I was perplexed by how the wolf had come to mean this thing. Why was it making people so angry in a way that 
cougars or bears weren't, for example, to talk about other apex predators in the Northwest, I was trying to write into that space of inquiry, which was why was this creature so hated? At the same time, it was coming back to the landscape. And I could see that there were these growing pains in how do we share the world with another apex predator that's long been considered a competitor. So I was intrigued by the problem of that question. Yes. And I'm glad that you said another apex predator because we're the ultimate apex predator. And I think that wolves are frightened. Everyone's frightened of us because we eat everything. We take others' habitats and we're, we're an invasive species. That would Absolutely. Well, and I think even learning that wolves are afraid of us, of course, and a young wolf is born very afraid. And I became fixated on the idea that both wolves and humans are creatures that are worth fearing to some degree, like a healthy level of reverence is there, but also you can fear for them, right? I fear for a wolf, just like I can maybe fear a wolf. And that idea that both wolves and humans can be both predator and prey. We don't think about the wolf as prey, but they're killed more often by humans than any other creature in the West. So that was important to challenge those notions of predator and prey that I'd inherited. Yes. And so you write a lot about the lopsided ecosystem that by not having the wolves there, then their prey are the deer. So tick-borne illnesses, of course, might be reduced and other things like car accidents because of the mm -hmm. deer leaping mm -hmm. out. It's something that we don't think about when we're championing biodiversity. It's not just for some aesthetic purpose because we need another species just for the look of it, to feel that we're doing well. Actually, our survival is dependent on their survival in maybe not an obvious way. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And just really recently, there's this new illness, chronic wasting disease that is hurting a lot of deer populations. And I was just talking to some biologists about this where wolves, for whatever reason, are picking out the deer that seem to be ill with this thing. They're helping control this, actually. And the worry is that if humans eat deer with this brain disease, it's sort of like a mad cow, there could be a way that it could jump to humans. And yet wolves are helping us in that way. And so the framework of the wolf as the thing that is harming is so one-sided. I saw this historically looking at relationships with wolves, where in villages in northeastern Japan in the 18th century, there would be these stories of people thanking wolves because if they're growing rice, the wolf is actually the shepherd that scares off the deer. And so that conception of how the the wolf is helping protect us. There is this very deep cultural lore around that, or not just lore, cultural truths in many societies. And we can see the way that the wolf is the evil one is really tied to certain ideas of raising livestock that are not the only way to live beside wolves. Indeed. And some of that fear might be founded because we were invading the habitats. <laughs> what one has to fear when you take over people's homes. Beautifully said, yes. And I think we see that now, too, with so much human territories continually expanding and we see these thresholds. I think that divide between, oh, that's nature, that's wolf habitat, and this is my habitat. That's so artificial, right? So we're all in the same habitat and the same forces that are affecting human habitat are affecting wolf habitat, whether that's wildfires. There's some interesting new studies coming out of Portugal about how wolves are influenced by wildfires and maybe there's more prey for them at times with the new green shoots that come out afterwards. There's deer, for example, but also they're more vulnerable to hunters um, in a sort of barren landscape. And so all of these forces that we think, how is this affecting human landscapes? It's also affecting wolves, of course.
So in the writing of the book, what special qualities did you find in the wolf? I mean, there's so many animals you could write about. And in the writing of the book, what did you learn about human relationships with wolves, predators and prey and dispersers in the wild? One of the original things that was coming to mind was just how much wolves have in common with humans in comparison to many other animals. Not only were they once the most widely distributed land mammal beside humans, they're incredibly adaptive and resilient. And you have wolves swimming in the tidal waters of British Columbia and along the Himalayan steppe. Like they really can exist in all these different environments. And I think the ways that wolves converse with one another, there's also so much there that really conjures the way that we humans do. And I was trying to piece together, why did we feel so threatened by wolves? In part, I think because there's a sort of uncanny mirror that humans have seen in a wolf. And I'll give an example. Wolf packs will form a diversity of family structures very often. So they will have a nuclear family where you'll have two breeders, but they can also have an extended family where there's sort of aunts and uncles in the pack. Or these are the biologist's name. They'll call a step family a wolf pack if they welcome an outside breeder or a foster family if they welcome another outsider. And I think the way that a pack is its own ecosystem, if one wolf dies, there's one wolf in this pack that might be the one that teaches how to move through the territory. And if, if that one wolf dies, the whole pack has a much higher likelihood of disbanding. And so this idea that the interconnectivity between the packs and the individuality of the wolves is so critical is so beautiful. And you see that studying these different wolves. They have personalities. And biologists have recorded one of the most unusual wolf packs, which was after wolves had been reintroduced to Yellowstone. And it was this giant wolf pack that had essentially three core packs, each with over 12 young wolves that would move between packs. And they were producing multiple litters in separate dens and then merging. And in the winter, they were all staying together. And I might have some idea in my head of here's what a wolf pack looks like. And yet, just like a human family, we have to remember they're adaptive and resilient. They're creating their own formations, responding to us, responding to our pressures in ways that were totally fascinating to me. And to go back to this idea of a disperser, which is a young wolf that leaves his or her pack looking for territory or a mate, this caught me because I was thinking about the term lone wolf, which I'd heard so much in headlines and pop culture. And I was thinking, what is this idea of the lone wolf? And it's really another example of how wrong we are when we talk about wolves and conjure them in this sloppy way, where in the wilderness, a lone wolf, a disperser who leaves its family is much more vulnerable. It's the most vulnerable time in a wolf's life. They've left and rather than being able to hunt as a group out on their own, maybe having to eat roadkill at higher risk of getting hit by a car and also other territorial packs and understanding that a lone wolf is actually alone because it's looking for connection, I think was important to remember. It's not just alone because it loves being alone, which I think there's a sort of human perspective there. I think so much of this wolf iconography was about this idea of the lone wolf, but actually they're just these incredible pack mammals in connectivity with each other. It's so interesting to see the sociability. And I think of some other animals like dolphins or orcas or swans, its sense of fierce loyalty. As an empathy, really. And mm -hmm. so if you could just go into that a little more, you talked about a mourning process or the communication. I mean, the mysteries of animal communication. And what did you discover mm -hmm. about that? It's extraordinary. You think when this anthropomorphic supremacy that we have where we think, oh, humans are just so smart. And you think a wolf could be walking down a path and could tell if the last wolf that passed they have different ways of marking territory. If it's squatting urination or lifting a leg urination, that codes different things. And a wolf would be able to tell the sex, the age, what this animal had eaten, what its mood was in a truly invisible way to my human eye. And so 
I think understanding the ways that they're in communication. We think so much about wolf howls. That's the stereotype of how wolves communicate, but that's just one of the many ways. And a wolf howl can travel for up to 10 miles usually. And it's a way of saying, oh, here's someone missing in the pack. Here's how we're communicating. We're finding lost members. They also have this whole silent form of communication that was interesting, sort of these social gaze where if you have a prey animal and there's a number of wolves that are around it and they're going to start a charge or a hunt, they have ways of communicating through eye contact and body posture and facial expression, which are, I think, so beautiful. And so much of my looking at the wolf was learning how to look at another animal and not just see it in response to me and not just think about, oh, what does this wolf have to do with me? But to think, how is this wolf existing on its own and communicating totally regardless of me? How are they communicating about this deer that they see? And that's so beautiful to try to imagine, to put myself in that landscape, but also imagine this isn't about me at all. I think that it's so fascinating because we think because we have written text and we have all this technology that our communication is superior in some ways. Mm -hmm. and It's great for recording things. But animals have this kind of 360 and even vibrational. I think that our senses, our instincts are being dulled by this screen life and <laughs> language can blind us in many ways. Yeah, I think so. That's so beautifully said. And I do think there's actually something about even the act of, you know, science and studying a wolf pack, for example, that forces a different level of attunement. I was just reading about how wolf feces with higher levels of cortisol show if wild animals are stressed. So scientists are checking scat to help determine, oh, wolves are stressed by snowmobilers. Wolves are stressed by dogs. And they're sort of reading these signs in a way that, yeah, we just forget there's data and intelligence encoded in the natural world in all of these ways that I, as someone who had not been trained in biology as a background, just forgot. So there's a way that studying an animal, and I think this is true for artists and any different sort of category of human, looking at another species adds a filter to your own. It's like you get prescription eyewear, I thought of it. Suddenly I'm imagining, how does a wolf see this world? And that interconnectivity comes to light. You start to see a glimmering in the ecosystem that I didn't before. If before I'd just seen, oh, here's a bush, here's a tree, this is beautiful, there's a bird. And yet imagining that, for example, in Yellowstone, after wolf reintroduction, elk herds are nibbling shrubs a little bit less. They're more wary, they're more cautious, they're looking out. As a result, there's more berries. Would I have noticed that? Maybe not. But there's more berries on some of these shrubs. And one of the effects of that is that grizzly bears are eating those berries before they hibernate. So in some places, this increase in wolves was actually leading to an increase in grizzlies. And that's told through the story of these berries, which is just, again, just marvelous to me. There's something so thought-provoking about those relationships, not just between these two apex predators, but between them, and the landscape and these plants and the ways that all of them are reacting to each other. It seems like wolves just have so much to tell us, so much through their howls and their habits and the traces they leave through their berries. And in Wolfish, you supplement and compare stories like Little Red Riding Hood with stories about wolves and their food, another non-human element of the world. What do you find valuable about this? I think for so long, I thought I'm only going to write about the real wolf. That's the most important thing. We've had too many stories. And yet I've gotten to a point where I just think we are living in a world where any story that comes out of my mouth is shaped by these other stories I've heard. I began to think of it as a shadow wolf. I have a shadow wolf attached to my sense of the wolf. You have a different one. Someone in India has a different version of the wolf. And it's useful to parse that and to remember that my version of the wolf is shaped by all these stories. 
and to be able to have a better relationship with the wolf. I felt like I needed to examine those stories to untangle them and try to see what is the wolf that I'm seeing here and how do I untie that shadow wolf from the real wolf and honor and acknowledge the fact that these stories maybe have some reality. The time that we had these fairy tales with wolves in Western Europe, there were some sort of legendary wolves that were preying on people. But why was that? Because of war and these different, again, human factors were causing these relationships. Fairy tales are rooted in ecology, just like stories about biology, stories about how we name wolves are rooted in human choices. Science is tied to colonialism. Stories about how people interact in the landscape are very tied to who those people are and how they feel. Are they meant to feel that they belong there? Um, what sorts of violence have they experienced on that land? And so to me, it was important to remember that environmental stories are also human stories, that humans are also animals. And to return us to, I'm just another member of the ecosystem like the wolf. And I, I wanted to mix those things paradoxically by showing the ways that the wolf has been represented to try to represent it better. So it seems like there's an element of coming back to something that we've maybe gotten out of touch with. And I'm curious, how do stories about wolves contribute to your descriptions of really base instincts like emotions, especially uncomfortable emotions like fear? Mm -hmm. I at first was resistant to talk about the wolf in relation to fear because it was just so stereotypically the big bad wolf. But it's been actually really interesting to look at them. One example is this French phrase that I returned to. And excuse me that my pronunciation is just dreadful. I took a year or two in high school. But this idea of entre chien et loup, which has roots in Latin and the idea like between a dog and a wolf, this hour of twilight when I can't tell was on the path in front of me, maybe. Is it a dog? Is it a wolf? I do think both wolves and humans are constantly trying to evaluate, am I right to be afraid? Is this thing scary or not? And stories about the wolf in many Western human contexts are really stories about like how we might evaluate threat. But it was also important once I started studying wolves and their biology more to remember that wolves are sizing us up too. If I see a wolf, it's looking at me and trying to figure out if I'm a threat. And a wolf is born very afraid. If a wolf hears, say, a rustle under a tree, it's going to go investigate it. And that's fear, but that's also curiosity. And in a way, that felt sort of liberatory to me to remember the ways that fear is also a form of inquiry, potentially. It can open doors the way it can close doors. And there's this term about a landscape of fear, which is there's these psychological topographies of fear that exist in predators and prey in the ecosystem. Wolves influence that. There's something I think really useful to remember that we are also humans and we have maybe our own topographies of fear. And I talked to some scientists who study these topographies of fear and the idea that if a wolf experiences something scary, if a human experiences something scary, if a plant does, you're going to be a different creature the next day. There's a rewiring that happens there. And fear in that sense is not really an emotion. It's like a set of responses. And I think that was helpful thinking about my own fear in my life. Yeah, I'm scared about climate change. I'm scared about this wildfire. I'm scared about a burglar coming into my house. Whatever it is, that is a set of reactions and I'm feeling it in my body. And how can I make sense of that? It was helpful for me to return to that animal sense by thinking about what does this fear look like to a wolf? How does a wolf respond to fear? It seems like in some ways an instinct would be to just dismantle the idea of the usefulness of fear. And I think we see that when we talk about wolves. Growing up in, in Southern Oregon myself, I hear people who are hesitant to go down the route of wanting to exterminate wolves. They prop up wolves as these absolutely untouchable things that are almost removed from the environment. They're like magical creatures. And that's, of course, not helpful at all. And they're, of course, running from the opposite side, which is people who are 
deadly afraid of wolves and wolves mean death to their livelihoods and possibly threats to their safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was interested in that dichotomy between the wolf as this appropriated term of the spirit animal, right? I was coming across that in Oregon. You meet people with that idea that the wolf really speaks for them. And the wolf, of course, doesn't. The wolf is not a representation of the self. The wolf is its own creature. And I was interested in trying to tell the story of OR7, who's this one wolf who left his pack in northeastern Oregon and became the first wolf in Western America and then in California, and thinking about how do I tell the story of this wolf without projecting myself onto it because I am also writing about my journey leaving home and the ways that we're both just two animals running into the built and natural world and running into other creatures. And at the same time, I do think it's very harmful when people imagine the wolf as either the villain or the hero. The wolf is this animal. How do we honor it in its individuality? Especially with OR7. OR7 specifically became the like, symbol of the conversation between protecting livestock protecting endangered species. How did the symbol making and the history of symbol making around OR7 and other wolves play into the book for you? Yeah, I think that's so well said. At first, I was so skeptical of it. I have to admit, I was uncomfortable with the way that I felt like people were anthropomorphizing OR7. So basically, this wolf became a somewhat international symbol. There were headlines in the UK. There were people entering the contest from Nigeria and Finland and this contest to name this wolf. So basically, an environmental nonprofit said, we're going to make this wolf too famous to kill. And so Newsweek referred to this wolf as the most famous wolf in the world. There was a period where there were Twitter accounts following the wolf, Facebook accounts. There was bumper stickers that said, OR7 for president. It was really this moment where the wolf was larger than itself. And I at first told myself I was just going to watch how people were watching this wolf because it said something really interesting about what we expected and what we desired the natural world to do for us. This wolf was looking for a mate in a part of the state where there were no other wolves. And so there were headlines like, Valentine's Day is coming, OR7 still single, that kind of thing. And I, that was really about human loneliness, right? OR7 doesn't know about Valentine's Day. And it highlighted the absurdity of us playing out our own dramas with this rom-com related to a wolf. And at the same time, though, OR7 became a case study for me where because it was collared, I could follow him in a way that I couldn't follow other wolves. And there were these stories. And I'll give an example. I read about the Chips fire in Northern California it was a huge wildfire that OR7 walked up to as it was burning. And at first, scientists were like, why is this collared wolf going towards this burn? And of course, it's because a wolf will sometimes go towards a fire because prey is escaping. And this becomes a very strategic way to hunt. I don't know that would have resonated for just this is a fact about wolves. But when I was following this one wolf and imagining what it was like to be this one wolf hunting alone, this vulnerability of a disperser and going towards this fire, I felt like I could visualize him in a different way. OR7 did travel thousands of miles, became a very important figurehead of wolf recovery. Was OR7 inherently special? No, in a lot of ways not. He just was trackable. And I think there is a value in looking really closely at one body, one animal, and saying, what does this one life look like? What is the shape of this? In the way that I think looking at one human life can be valuable, even if that human is not president or a famous person. <laughs> Obviously, there's those elements, like you said, with Valentine's Day, but I'm not 
against anthropomorphizing. We always, when we read a story, we imagine ourselves into that life and we can only imagine through our own eyes. And something struck me when I interviewed Ingrid Newkirk of PETA and written so many books about this. And when you look into the eyes of an animal, there you are. You can tell there's a person in there. And that if a little bit of anthropomorphizing helps us understand, as she says, that we're the same in every way that's important. We've had so much distancing, trying to consider ourselves distant from the other animals. That I'm not against that. And interesting what we can learn from animals, because with all our sophisticated devices and our intelligence, they have adaptive intelligence. And we, in many ways, are very illogical. We distract ourselves and aren't able to focus on our own extinction. Animals are just logical. It's something threatening their habitat, their lives. That's what they focus on and nothing else. Yeah, I agree, actually. And I should have said this. At first, I was squeamish about the anthropomorphizing. I thought, oh, gosh, humans have projected too much on animals. Maybe I should be doing that. And I've really come around to really feeling like there is a place for this. And if we're not imagining that animals have emotions, we're seeing them as sort of robotic automatrons. And there's such a harm in that. And you look at these stories, wolves are found to bury their dead pups. What is that? And that speaks to Something beautiful. And I think it was in Carl Safina's book talking about this. I began to visualize it like a color wheel, this north, south, east, west of animal emotions. Surely an animal can feel love, can feel fear. And I started thinking about like those two things are opposite each other on these poles of what an animal can feel. And it made me think a lot about the connection between fear and love and what is loss, but knowing how dear something was to you. And we see the way that animals care for their young. Of course, there's a grieving there that we maybe can't understand and aren't privy to. But to fail to imagine that, I think, is such a disservice. And it also makes me think about what you said. You look in the eyes and you see the person inside the animal. I would say, also, I see the animal inside myself. So often humans, we think of ourselves as not animals. And I just think, yes, it's seeing the personhood in animals and also seeing the animal inside ourselves that's so important. Oh, exactly. Yes, I interviewed Carl Safina and I know his book, Becoming Wild. Yes, exactly. Um, so wonderful. Yes. And so it's facing the animal. Sometimes we're afraid of monsters. Are we afraid that we're the monsters? And I think that sometimes we have to face that in terms of our predatorial role. And as you looked into this question of fear and courage and mm -hmm. predation, what did you learn about yourself? I think one of the things that jumped out to me was that I thought predator and prey were these fixed states. And I was relating to feeling I'd had a, an experience being grabbed on a street by a stranger I didn't know where I really felt like I'm prey in the landscape. And at the same time, of course, learning about wolves helped me realize all the ways that predator or prey are these categories that maybe pass over us. We're sort of oscillating between them. So I heard a story, for example, about in Wyoming, a biologist was following a large alpha wolf. And one day it was collared. And so he'd been tracking it. And one day he got a signal that the collar showed a mortality signal. The wolf had died. And he tromps through the snow to find it. And this big wolf is in the middle of a field surrounded by a spattering of blood. And a circle. He's trying to figure out what has happened. And there's these sort of two holes in the wolf's side. And after a minute, he realizes that an elk had skewered the wolf. There'd been some sort of hunt between these 600 pound elk and this really strong wolf. And the elk had won and it had grabbed the wolf and spun it around and flung it over and the wolf had died. And in that situation, who was the predator and who was the prey? And his point was the prey can be a lot more powerful than we give it credit for. And I thought that was actually quite helpful for me to think about in human context as well, the ways that I had power and a 
especially as a human. And this is again where like identity comes in. There's these layers of power that inform fear and we're wrong about fear all the time. Just because I fear a wolf doesn't mean it actually poses a threat to me. Just because I think something is predator doesn't make it safe. A wolf who I read as predator is actually more likely to be killed by a human, much more likely than for it to kill me. I think it's the last 18 years in North America, we've had 12 wolf attacks. Only two of those have been fatal. So the threat that wolves pose is so low. Far more people, people are killed every year by dogs, by toddlers with guns, by falling vending machines, by ladders, right? And so a wolf doesn't occupy anywhere that same level of actual threat. So I think it was just useful to remember that just because we think something is predator, that doesn't actually mean very much, maybe. On the labels predator and prey, there are two definitions, that which eats and which is eaten, and then the one that matters when it gets dark, that which is threatening and that which is not. This latter definition draws little distinction between a wolf and a pack of rabid squirrels. This story illustrates how interchangeable predators and prey can be and how human fear can twist just about anything. I was out in the red buttes with a friend and we'd overshot our campsite by about five miles. Forced to stop for the setting sun, we made camp in a flat meadow. Already on edge from getting lost, I was dismayed to watch the sun disappear. For one, because cooking in the dark is a slow and messy process, but mostly I just don't like night noises. And we were cowboy camping. I can't help imagining that when my eyes close, all manner of dangerous creatures with long snouts come sniffling at my sleeping bag. I was traipsing the edges of the pitch black camp when I heard my friend gasp, What are those? I looked up, my headlamp flashing. Before I saw them, I knew what I was going to see. Two sets of glowing eyes. I've heard not to jerk back or run. The eyes were close to the ground. They came closer. I felt one for my bear spray. Those don't look like deer eyes, I yelled. They're too close to the ground. Ugh, they're not moving like deer either. My whole body seized with nerves. Dark, lazy bodies slumped toward the light of our camp. We yelled and stamped. The edges of our light caught their shape. I felt the wave of relief. Those were deer ears. But it didn't calm me as much as you might think. The two probably deer came a little closer and split up to circle our camp. Why are they circling us? What kind of deer circle? It's like they're stalking us. Are you sure they're deer? I think so. We watched them and their eyes flashed in return. They weren't leaving, just pacing on either side. Why aren't they moving? Oh, they thought. Have you heard of shape changers? Said my friend. I think it was at that point that he began to pray. And though I'm not religious, I asked him to let me in on the prayer, just in case. The next morning, I woke up to a crunching, snuffling sound. I started and turned to see two deer, heads bent. They nibbled on the lush grass we had made camp on. I couldn't help but laugh. No wonder. One looked up at me and jerked its head as if to say, it's not my fault you decided to camp on our breakfast. Now back to the interview. Right. And it's important, as you've written in your book, having a certain level of fear, not going <laughs> blindly trusting is very useful. And But mm -hmm. we have to make sure that we don't overstimulate that, over-traumatize ourselves. And it makes me reflect back to this question of adaptive intelligence, how we're losing that sense, that connection with the wild, or even in mild ways, the way children used to be allowed to play outdoors unsupervised, come back at dinner time or something. And for various reasons, some good and some perhaps overprotective, children have lost that sense of the freedoms of childhood. And then, of course, then when they get to be 20 or whatever, they can find themselves in very risky situations without that 
that protective layer of just having, you know, experienced the wild uh, in a sense. No, and that makes me think a lot about Little Red Riding Hood, which I read many old versions of it in archives. And I think the thing that jumped out to me was that the mother knows there's some threat in the woods. She says to Little Red, well, don't talk to strangers. It's different in different versions. And yet she still sends her out in the forest. She still says, go out there. And in thinking about that story, the thing that caught me was not that there's no threat out there and we should totally get rid of the story. It's that there is some danger in the world, of course. And as a woman, I'd experienced danger that I wanted to pretend it wasn't there. And I had to reckon with the fact that some amount of caution was necessary. And yet, how do we preserve that go out into the woods? I really want to keep camping alone. And I think children should be absolutely playing outside and seeing the risk and still going out there is so important, I think. The risks of staying inside of Little Red Riding Hood, just staying in her house. To go back to another fairy tale, the idea of just staying in the tower and being told that you'll be safe if you're in the tower. But what sort of childhood is that? Yeah, that's an alternative story of Little Red Riding <laughs> The Sleeping Beauty. Was that the Rapunzel? Rapunzel. Yes. Well, sort of horrific, and they need a she needs a man to kiss her away. Exactly. <laughs> There's another message that's strange to put out there. But going back to this complex relationship of even cooperation between predator and prey, we're thinking a lot now about the circular economy and how we can make that happen. This this web of life where each species is dependent on the other, and when one falls, it becomes food for another. This is nature's. It's circular by design. It's everything is circular circular in the natural world. It's kind of magic. So we shouldn't really mess with that too much. I think remembering that a wolf does not kill a sheep even out of cruelty. This is why the metaphor of the wolf pack, the lone wolf, the shooter, the wolf pack attacking, it's wrong, right? Because a wolf does this to survive. And I think we forget that in the world, deer is going to die slowly of sickness. There's a real pain in that, for example, in the wild. And multiple times I'd be told death by a wolf can be a form of kindness in a way. There's a mercy in that if you're old or you're sick and you're a wild animal. And the ways that we conflate what is evil, what is the wrong way to die, it's worth thinking about the ways that we die in hospitals. And I just think like our discomfort with death culturally, we then project that onto wolves and a, a deer dying because it's old, because it's eaten by a wolf. No, we see that in a nature documentary and maybe feel really sad. I definitely have felt emotional in those moments. And yet that's life, right? Yeah, I believe some cultures in Tibet, I believe, feed their dead to vultures, which seems can be a kind of reincarnation passing to another spirit form. I'm also fascinated by the demonstrations of creativity in the animal world. Could you go into that within wolves? We think of this lone wolf howling, and yet even that is a sort of a call for connection in a way. And I do think through that howl is coded with all of this emotion and language. And what's important for us to remember, even as an artist or someone who thinks about what does it mean to create something, you're trying to reach another. And I think I can find a certain form of inspiration and in how a wolf goes off on its own and then is saying, but hey, I'm still over here and listen to me and you don't have to be afraid of this. Wolves are constantly telling, they're coding, they're teaching their young what to be afraid of. And I think that in the same way that humans are, there's a beauty in those nonverbal forms of caretaking that I find really inspiring. The way that they're playing with each other, the way that many wolves will mate for life in that this idea of the alpha wolf has been pretty debunked by now. Really, an alpha wolf is just a parent. And I think the way that you have aunts and stepsisters and all of these other sort of forms of family that are helping to take care as well, there's really something to learn 
from that when we think about our own families. And I was talking to a biologist about what can we do to help ranchers live beside wolves, right? Because they're facing the externalities maybe of having wolves back in the landscape. And one of the things that she was saying was we have to rekindle the herd instinct. And those three, four words really jumped out to me as a thing that is actually applicable across species. And her point was that cows right now are often bred just for meat. They're bred to exist within capitalism and not to be brave or how do these cows interact with each other and protect each other. The cows have forgotten how to teach fear to each other. But I started thinking about that in my life too. How do I rekindle the herd instinct when I'm afraid of coming climate change? Or we have to think about community. We have to think about solidarity. We have to think about building these connections across groups. And so this is a long way from talking about wolf creativity, but I do think there's something about the ways that they, whether it's wolves or maybe their prey, these ways of communication and connection in the face of threats, I think are so important for us to look at in this time that to me, climatically, the last few years in Oregon, we've had absolutely record-breaking wildfires and also ice storms. And it's felt very anxious to imagine going towards the next few decades. And I do get a real sense of solidarity and hope by how wolves are navigating these changed landscapes and moving through them and raising new generations in the face of it. A wolf pack will pass on territory potentially through multiple generations. They're stewards of the land. And what can we learn from that? Seems so important to look at ourselves and the wolves as whole creatures, as beautiful and frightening. I think Without it, we lose so much empathy for the work that we all do. Absolutely. There's a phrase in birding, the spark bird is the bird that kind of gets you interested in birding. And when I learned that about birds, I also thought, wow, the wolf for me and for many other people was my spark animal that got me thinking about all of these different animals and connections. And I think that the, the wolf has such a large sort of cultural footprint. And some of that is sort of cartoonish in modern depictions. But there is so much we can actually take from this animal that has been vilified for so long. Yes. And so as a woman, as a human, as an animal, are you less afraid today? I definitely am. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about thinking about how fear emerges in wolves and the ways that fear and curiosity and inquiry are intertwined. And I have this real impulse to want to go out and go backpacking in, say, Montana, where my family lives, where grizzly bears, they've repopulated it, essentially, in parts of the state where they weren't before. And could I be afraid? Sure. But isn't that also exciting to maybe see a grizzly bear if I'm careful across the hill? Like that dance of respecting their territory and not wanting to have a confrontation, but also understanding that what does it mean to share that landscape? And in a way, I really try to differentiate between animal predators and say some of the human encounters that I had that really scared me. I think they're different. It's important to say that. And at the same time, when I was younger writing this book, I began research in my early 20s and I was thinking, it was all about evaluating fear in my head and how can I see if this thing is actually going to be a threat to me. And I think now I'm understanding, of course, that we can't always do that in life. And really, we're actually trying to live beside the uncertainty. And what does it mean to exist beside that which we do not know? We're mortal beings. We're animals. What is a wolf, but actually just like a quite fragile animal across the landscape? And that's us as well. And I think part of working on this project and thinking about the natural world was understanding my own fragility that I have to just accept about being alive. And there's a beauty in just accepting that in perhaps a Buddhist sense of death is a part of life. And that still means that I'm going to go out and explore, I think. In my most fearful moments, I felt like the world had gotten a lot smaller for me and I didn't want to go do things. And it's back to feeling really wide. And 
the last thing I'll say about that is I think so often when people maybe have anxieties or fears about any category, we think, oh, I just have to figure out how to grow out of this, grow out of this. But I think one of the things I realized was the importance of figuring out how you grew into it. And if you imagine what are the wires that we can trace in our brains that determined why I feel the certain way. I was going to a cabin to do research for this book. I was just going to write and people kept telling me, don't get murdered, don't get murdered. As if that was the sort of most important thing that could happen with a woman going into a cabin in the woods. And that was a harmful narrative. Little Red Riding Hood is harmful, not just to the wolf, who's very unfairly portrayed, but also to this girl who's told she's going to go meet a predator. She's going to make a bad choice. It's her fault. That was the story of girlhood that I inherited. And I think in that way, untangling these narratives about fear are important both for non-human animals and for human animals. Indeed. And speaking of that dance, you wrote, we don't exist with wolves in a boxing ring, you realized, but on something like a crowded dance floor, which I thought was beautifully expressed our shadows overlapping as we come in and out of contact with other species and one another, touching lives in nearly untraceable ways. And I just like the way you express that. It gives us something to think about. And as you think about the future and uh, teachers that are important for you, the beauty and wonder of the natural world, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I think the most important thing a teacher did for me was had us all go out. I was in grade school at the time and we just had to sit in the woods and just make lists of everything we heard and saw and noticed. And it was really boring at first. I complained for 10 minutes or 15 and then forcing you to see and to observe. And I think so much of being a writer, someone who's trying to engage with creativity is actually being an observer, right? And watching. And I think like that idea of bearing witness to the natural world, I'm studying the rate of change in the natural world, species disappearing. It's important to remember that we cannot grieve the things we do not know to witness. We cannot love the things we do not know exist. And so learning to look and to love and to notice, I think are more important now, if only because then we know there's still so much here. Yes, species are going extinct, but there's also so many species that are still here. And how can we honor and think about them and not focus on just the loss? I sometimes get bogged down feeling sad about the loss. And to do that, then it's like, okay, go sit outside and sit down for 30 minutes and just take notes of what I'm seeing and all that is still here. And that's all that we still are working to save. Well, thank you, Erica Berry, for bearing witness and bringing us these stories about wolves, real and imaginary predator and prey, so that we can face our fears and find our inner strength and compassion. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia and Indigo. What a wonderful conversation. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Indigo Magania, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Indigo Magania. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.